And most gracious Father, as we come to your word, we come as sinners who are just beggars, who need to be nourished. And so we come to your word for that, and we ask that you would give us our daily bread. We ask, Lord, that you would, that you would feed us. We ask, Lord, that any hindrance that would draw us away from turning our attention completely to you would be cast away. So we pray, Lord, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit working within us, that you would help us to focus, help us to understand your word, that we may more fully grow in Christ's likeness, that he would be glorified in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 23 and 24. This morning I saw a friend on Twitter who was going to be preaching verses 16 to 26. I said, wow, how long are you going to take to preach this? He said, I don't know, maybe two years. I said, oh, I'm just preaching verses 23 and 24 today. He said, what, are you going to take five years? Maybe. So we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 today. And as I was, uh, this week, as I was reading other sermons and listening to sermons and researching for this sermon, I was reminded of a story that I remember hearing, actually, uh, in my years when I lived in Las Vegas, growing up in Vegas, and when I was actually in the casino business in Vegas. There was a story about what happened when Howard Hughes died and how the casinos honored him in 1976. The story goes, I mean, he was a very formative person in uh, the foundation of Las Vegas, and he had owned several of the casinos there. And so when he passed away, all of the casinos agreed that they would have one minute uh, that they would honor him by being silent. For that one minute, the dice would stop rolling, the cards would stop shuffling, the roulette wheel would stop spinning, everything would just stop and go silent for one minute. 60 seconds, and as that one minute expired, one of the pit bosses in one of the casinos looked up from his watch and coldly said, roll the dice, he's had his minute. Now obviously, I don't, I don't know the history between that boss and that pit boss and Howard Hughes, but the coldness and the hardness of heart that permeates that story actually illustrates the way that a lot of people think about and act toward God. I remember watching one episode of Family Feud, and the question was, name one place where people are most likely to check their watches. I was sure that the number one answer would be the workplace. I mean, when the clock is winding down and it's almost time to go home, what are you doing? You're you're watching the clock, right? No. The The number one answer was church. And as a pastor, this actually filled me with fear. Uh, I mean, I know, I know, friends, I know how busy your week is. I know how many things you have going on. I know that your personal time is very limited. I, I know all that. But does Sunday morning ever feel like it's interrupting your plans? Does it ever feel like church is just kind of getting in the way of what you want to do? Do you have other plans that you, you can't wait to get out of here today to fulfill? See, God has created us to walk in and to live in fellowship with him. And at the heart of living in fellowship with God is the priority of worshiping him. 
Worship is never supposed to be something that we view as secondary. Worship is never supposed to be something that we view as optional. It's certainly not to be viewed as something that we view as kind of a detour for our lives. And the best argument that I can come up with for all that is to ask you what you think we're going to be doing for all of eternity in heaven. I mean, we'll be worshiping, and we'll be worshiping without ceasing. And if you don't love it now, on this side of glory, what makes you so sure that you'll love it for all of eternity? Worshiping God on this side of glory is designed to be something that kind of whets our proverbial appetite for worshiping in heaven. R.C. Sproul said that worship is supposed to be a taste of heaven. But what is worship? Oh man, there are a lot of people who would give you a lot of different answers for that. So let me start with a dictionary definition. Webster's Dictionary defines it as, quote, reverence offered a divine being or supernatural power, also an act of expressing such reverence. I think that falls short of a biblical definition of worship. It is reverence, yes, uh, but it's more than reverence. It's more than just acting reverently. So let me move on to A.W. Pink's definition. A.W. Pink defines worship this way. He says, Worship is a redeemed heart occupied with God, expressing itself in adoration with thanksgiving. That's more like it. That's a, that's a biblical definition. I have no complaints about that definition at all. But to help us understand what worship is exactly, let me remind you of what we would have said, what we would have called it four or 500 years ago. We wouldn't have called it worship. We would have called it worthship. Worthship. So what we have today uh, is an abbreviated form of that word, and Obviously a word that's a little bit easier to pronounce. Uh, but what was meant by the word worship? Well, it meant that you were ascribing unto God his true worth, his ultimate worth. And this should force us to ask two very important questions. First of all, what is God's worth? And secondly, how could we even possibly begin to estimate or to measure God's worth? And those are questions that are right at the heart of this conversation that we've been studying for the past month or so, this wonderful and complex conversation that took place between Jesus and this Samaritan woman at the well in Samaria. Their conversation brings us to the verses today that serve as two of the very most important verses relating to the subject of worship. And I'm talking about the entire Bible. These two verses tell us very succinctly exactly what worship means, what acceptable worship looks like. So you'll recall that in the passage that we've been studying leading up to this point, Jesus expressed his awareness of the woman's sin, at which point she kind of stopped being snarky with him. But she, she changed the subject, trying to put the spotlight on Jesus by saying, oh, I, I see that you're a prophet. So in other words, let's get the spotlight off of me. Let's, let's look at you for a minute. You're a prophet. Remember, he's a Jewish prophet, and the Samaritans had rejected the Jewish prophets. They had rejected all of the scriptures outside of the first five books of the Bible. 
From there, she went on to talk about how her ancestors had always worshipped God on this mountain in Samaria, Mount Gerizim, while also pointing out that the Jews had always insisted that they were wrong and that the right place to worship was Jerusalem. And Jesus lets her know that the Jews were right. But he also let her know that an hour was coming in which there would be a change. An hour was coming which would mark the end of one needing to go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple because Jesus himself is the true temple. So Jesus is saying these things to this woman as he's bringing her to a place where she would put saving faith in Christ. And he brings up worship. Is that weird? He, he, he's, he's sharing the gospel with her. He's showing her her sin. He's showing her her need to get right before God, and he puts worship right in front of her. Is that weird? I mean, uh, if he wants to turn her into a convert, why bring up worship? Can't that wait? And the answer is no, it can't. Because worship is not only essential, but it is central to the Christian life. She has been a worshiper her entire life, and that's the problem. She was a worshiper, but she was worshiping falsely. So Jesus is going to turn her from being a false worshiper into a true worshiper. And so with that said, the point of this passage is this. Since God desires that we worship him in spirit and in truth, we should make sure that that's exactly what we're doing, that we too may be true worshipers of God ourselves. So having told her in verse 22, Jesus said to her, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus continues in verses 23 and 24. So let's take a look at those verses. He continues saying, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So one of the things that you want to look for when you're studying the Bible is repetition. And there's a phrase that gets repeated here in both verses, worshiping in spirit and truth. The purpose of coming to church every week is to worship. And to worship rightly. I mean, that's, that's, that's why this place exists. That's why we're still standing. It's what we do. For up to an hour and a half, maybe, per week, the goal is that every moment during our gathering, our hearts would be turned unto the Lord without any distractions. That's an important qualifier. Without any distractions. If you look at some of the movements that have taken place in the American church, uh, you can see how many churches are actually offering distractions from God. They're so driven by programs and pragmatism. There was one mega church pastor who said about 10 years ago, and some of you have probably heard this guy. He said that if you were a Christian, his church wasn't for you. They were so focused on doing anything and everything that they could to bring the lost in. That he said, if you're a Christian, this church isn't for you. So, what he's saying is his church exists for the goats, not for the sheep. Now, I can very much appreciate the desire 
to reach and save the lost. But God's design for reaching the lost is not to try to draw them into church at any cost, believe it or not. Rather, God's design for reaching the lost is that we, that we Christians, would go out and share the gospel. Because the world isn't going to come to us. We must go to them. The purpose of the church is to feed and train up mature sheep. It's not to feed goats. So the results of this pragmatic, program-driven movement in which churches do everything they can to make the church more palatable, more appealing to goats, is that they bring in people who aren't looking for God and who aren't being found by God because they're not being taught or confronted by the whole counsel of God. The good news, however, is that despite these kinds of problems being widespread and epidemic in in our country and, and beyond, God is still seeking and saving sinners who are not seeking Him. And He still is saving sinners by the power of the Holy Spirit, working in the hearts of people as the gospel is preached. Jesus, the Son of God, came to seek and save the lost. They weren't seeking Him. He came to seek them. And here in this passage, Jesus tells us that the Father is seeking people to worship Him. Now one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that God knows everything. So the word seeking, we understand it's a figure of speech. God is not wondering where they are. It's not like He's ignorant of who they are and where they are. Rather, He sent forth his son to seek and save the lost. And the Holy Spirit draws his people to Christ. The question that the Samaritan woman was getting at, though, it had everything to do with worship. It actually had everything in the world to do with worship and where it should be done. Her confusion had more to do with what was the right place for worshiping God. And Jesus, speaking of his impending death on the cross when he said an hour is coming, redirects her thinking, telling her that the hour was coming when it wouldn't matter where, but rather how we must worship God. Jesus himself is the new temple. Our worship must be presented through him as our mediator. Where we gather to worship isn't of primary concern. The real question is how? How do we worship God? How do we worship, not only how do we worship God, but very importantly, how do we worship God rightly? That's the primary question. And here's the answer to that question. How should we worship God? Jesus tells us. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. He doesn't say can. He doesn't say should. He says must. There are three very important statements in John's gospel account that use this word, must. The first one was in the previous chapter, John chapter 3, verse 7, where he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. A few verses later, in verse 14, he said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And now we come to the third one. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. These three great musts belong together. First, the need for the new birth. Secondly, the need for Christ's sacrificial atonement. And finally, the need not only to worship God, but to worship God 
rightly. What he says here, what Jesus says here, immediately informs us, it immediately signifies that there is a right way to worship God, and there is a wrong way to worship God. In fact, there are thousands, uncountable wrong ways to worship God, because there are countless wrong answers for every right answer. The, the, the answer for what's two plus two is, is four. How many wrong answers are there to that question? Infinite, right? We, we can't count how many wrong answers there are. There are so many. It's the same thing with this. There are wrong ways to worship God. There are infinite, uncountable wrong ways to worship God. And so we must not only understand what it means to worship God in spirit and truth, but we must examine our own worship to make sure that we're doing what he wants, that we're worshiping God the way he desires to be worshiped, the way he deserves to be worshiped. So let's just take these two things, one at a time. We'll start by looking at what it means to worship in spirit. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, first of all, if you look at your text, you'll notice that it doesn't say worship in the spirit. There's no definitive article there. The word the is not there. It just says worship in spirit, not the spirit. There's no definitive article. So that debunks the idea that Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit. What's he talking about then? He's talking about your spirit. He's talking about my spirit. He's talking about the spirit of the individual person. See, we're not just physical beings, right? A person, a Christian, also has a spirit, a living spirit. Jesus is saying that this is where true and acceptable worship takes place when a person's spirit is turned toward God. Now we have to see this in the context of what Jesus had said about the change that was coming when worship would no longer have to be in a specific location, geographically speaking. It can be from anywhere. Anywhere a person worships God by turning their heart to Him, worship takes place there. And that holds true even to this very day. The way that God designed the church, the body, is for us to worship together when we gather on the Lord's day. But many people think that simply gathering with the body, going to church, is worship. Being in the pews, being in a seat, in the building, while everybody else is in here, is worship. Is it? No, it's not. It's possible for people to come to church for any number of reasons. Maybe you come because mom and dad made you come. Maybe you come because you think it's the right thing to do, and so it's just kind of a, something to check off your list of things that you, you feel like you should do, but you're not exactly sure why. Uh, maybe you come because you want to network with people and maybe get a couple prospective uh, clients to add to your, to your phone. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons that people come to church but church isn't about any of those things. Worship doesn't include any of those things. Church is about worship. Church is about turning your heart, your individual heart, to the Lord and giving Him your undivided attention for an hour to an hour and a half per week. So what did the Samaritan woman get so wrong about her understanding of worshiping God? Well, she thought it meant going to a particular place, in her case, Mount Gerizim. 
But let's keep in mind, she's not the only one who didn't worship properly. The Jews were also prone to get it wrong, although in a different way. They thought it was about ritual. They thought it was about what was going on in the body, not in the spirit. And so they'd have all these outward rituals and all these rites, all the while their hearts were tragically not being turned to God. In fact, their hearts were far from God while they were going through all these outward motions. But what did Jesus say of these people? He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Don't think for a moment, friends, that we're not capable of fitting that description ourselves as well. And since God desires that we worship him in spirit and in truth, we should make sure that that's what we're doing. That we too may be true worshipers of God. See, some people go to church to think that you know, church fulfills some kind of obligation to God, but their heart remains far from Him. There are people who go to church every week and go through all the motions, and their heart remains far from Him. Maybe it's singing a song and having a particular emotional reaction, saying a prayer, or fill in the blank. It could be anything, anything that does not involve turning your heart, your spirit unto the Lord would fit this description. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in our day and age, there are plenty of churches out there that try everything. There are churches that have fog machines and lasers all geared toward producing some kind of ambiance, uh, which creates some kind of emotional feeling for the person. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Please understand me on this. Worship can be a very, very emotional thing. True worship can be a very emotional thing. But ambiance, lasers, fog, music, emotions, some of these things are only put in place by some churches for the sake of manipulating emotions. So emotion in and of itself isn't worship. Can a, par- can a person whose heart is far away from God be moved to tears by a song and yet still remain far away from God? Absolutely. There's all kinds of secular music that moves people to tears. Classical music moves people to tears. So the answer, as shocking as it might be, is yes, it's, par- it's possible for a person to even be singing a song and move to tears and yet for their heart to be far away from God. The tragic truth is that so many people go to church first and foremost for themselves. Because there's something they want. There's something they think that they need. They think there's, there's, there's something they hope to get out of it. Whether that be maybe an emotional high or, you know, prospective clients, whatever. And here, here's where it becomes tragic. This is not just a case of people worshiping God wrongly. No, in many cases, it really boils down to a case of people worshiping themselves. The outward aspect, the motions... It's not necessarily wrong. The outward actions, including the emotional outpourings, however, need to flow from what's happening in your spirit. What's happening inside of a person. Because God isn't interested in self-centered worship. 
That's why he told the Israelites, Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 23. He said, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings in your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Now, friends, God didn't say those things because they were lousy singers or terrible musicians. No, he said them because the people were going through the motions. They they were doing all this stuff outwardly, right? All the right things. They were doing these things outwardly, but it wasn't flowing from an inward turning to God in their spirits. And that's what God wants. That's what God desires. That's what he deserves. And we strive as a church, we strive to do that every time we gather as a local church. But that's not all we try to do. We strive to worship in spirit and truth. So now let's move on to that. What does it mean to to worship in truth? It can mean a lot of things. I think there are a lot of things implied in that. But for starters, there's an implication here that if you worship in truth, you're not worshiping falsely. In other words, you're, you're not uh, going through the motions. You're, you're not just pretending to worship. You're not just doing the stuff outwardly. You're truly and intentionally turning your spirit unto God. It also means that you have a right and true understanding of who God is. I mean, we should have an intellectual understanding of God. Every single one of us should understand certain things. We must understand certain things about God. He's not just some distant, obscure deity who really turns out to be just a deified version of ourselves. No, we understand that he is altogether different from us. We understand that God is holy, and we're not. We understand that God is triune. We understand that God is just, merciful, loving, all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent, and the list goes on and on. But how do we know these things? How do we know exactly who God is? And the answer is because we understand who the Bible reveals him to be. In John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus is uh, praying his high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays to the Father, sanctify them, speaking of his disciples, speaking of you and me and everybody else who has ever believed in Christ unto salvation. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words then, when we worship God based on what Scripture tells us, we are worshiping in truth. We must not only know what is true about God, but we must also know what is not true about God. And the only place to be informed of what is true about God and what is not true about God is His Word. But Scripture does more than just tell us who God is. It does that, and it does that thoroughly. But just as important, especially when we're talking about worship, is the fact that the Bible not only tells us who God is, but it also tells us how we are to worship Him. Let me ask you this. Who gets to determine how God is worshipped? Does fallible man, 
with all of our inclinations to sin, with all of our inclinations to worship falsely, do we have the right to decide how God should be worshipped? Or does God have the sovereign right to decide how he is to be worshipped? We really don't need to spend much time thinking about that, do we? It's kind of a no-brainer. It's not a tough decision. The Bible is filled with people who tried to worship God in ways that God did not accept. Genesis chapter 4. Cain wants to worship God, and God doesn't accept it. Why? Because he didn't bring God what God had instructed. And so he kills his brother Abel, whose worship was acceptable unto God. Nadab and Abihu in Numbers, they give us another example of worship that God doesn't accept. They, they come into uh, the, the holy place and they offer strange fire or unauthorized fire uh, in the house of the Lord. And what happened? They, they instantly died. What about Aaron? Remember what Aaron did? In Exodus chapter 32, Moses was up on Mount Sinai with God, and Aaron was down with the people. And when Moses is up there, he finds out that Aaron has made a golden calf for the people. God tells him. And so what does he do? He goes down, and he found that Aaron had indeed made this golden calf at the people's request. And so Moses confronts him, basically saying, what, what are you doing? And Aaron says to him, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself. They are prone to evil. For they said to me, make for us a God who will go before us. For this, Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. I said to them, Aaron says, I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. If you ask me, I think there's probably a little bit more to that story that Aaron didn't share with Moses. I don't think that Aaron was quite as innocent as he was trying to sound. You know the people. It's not my fault. You know the people. You know that I have to give them what they want, right? Nope. No. There's a right and a wrong way to worship God. The Israelites had desired to worship God, but in a way that didn't please him, in a way that he didn't accept, in a way that he did not prescribe. The people were not worshiping in truth. And that's the reason that we have the second commandment. If you know what the second commandment, it's you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Now let me ask you, what could possibly be so wrong with making an image of God? Well, for one, he's spirit. He's spirit. That's what Jesus says here in this passage. He's spirit. He doesn't have a physical image, a physical likeness. And so with that said, any and every physical image will always fall short of capturing the full, true essence of God. How do you make an image of God's holiness? You can't. It's, it's abstract. It's not something that you can picture. It's just something that he is. It's the essence of his being. Think of how this applies to Jesus. I mean, there are tons and, and hundreds and thousands of famous pictures and paintings of Jesus, but how many of those fully capture his divine essence? Not even one. Not even one. 
None of them do. And if they tried, if they tried to capture every aspect of his divine essence, they would invariably fail. And so with that said, I actually think a strong case can be made that creating an image or a picture of Jesus is a second commandment violation. But what we have here is actually a very important principle that was recovered um, and really more articulated, more fully articulated in the Protestant Reformation. The principle is that Scripture alone must shape both our understanding of who God is and how he is to be worshipped. And so with that said, if you, if you were to back off and, and, and examine our services that we have here, there is a scriptural basis for every single thing that we do on Sunday mornings. We pray, we read scripture, we sing scripture, we pray again, pray scripture, we teach scripture, we confess where we personally have departed from scripture in our lives. We pray for one another because God has instructed us to do all these things when we gather. Every single aspect, every moment of our service is informed and directed by Scripture. That's the way it should be. There's a name for this. This is called what they, what they would call, you engineers are going to love this, the regulative principle of worship or the RPW. I, I know how much you engineers would, would love that. Um, the modern edition of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith by Founders Ministries puts it this way. It says this, quote, the acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by him, and it is delimited by his own revealed will. Thus, he may not be worshipped according to human imagination or inventions or the suggestions of Satan, nor through any visible representations, nor in any way other that is not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Now you may have noticed this morning that we didn't do the greeting, and we didn't do the announcements. Why not? Because at the board meeting this past week, we all agreed that those two things don't work to turn our spirits to the Lord. In fact, they do the very opposite. They're not acts of worship. And so, uh, because they're not prescribed specifically by Scripture for worship, we decided to move the announcements to the end of the service, and there is plenty of time before and after the service for, uh, for, for fellowship, for greeting one another. And besides, with the, with the kids in here, let's, let's not pretend that having the greeting time doesn't get them kind of riled up, right? They're going around meeting their friends, and we want their hearts turned to the Lord, too. See, the regulative principle of worship, the RPW, the idea that Scripture alone must inform how we worship, flows from an understanding of how fallen man is. It flows from an acknowledgement that our own personal inclinations to sin prevents us from being wise enough to know how to worship God properly, to know how to worship Him based on our ideas and our desires. And so for that reason, we worship God only in the way that he has commanded us to do so, knowing that if we're going to worship in spirit and truth, the kind of worship that he wants and deserves and demands, we are so inclined in our flesh, we are so inclined to not worship in truth if it's left up to us to decide. We must defer to God's wisdom 
as revealed in his word as to how God should be worshiped, must be worshiped. What else does it mean? Last of all, I'd say certainly not least, worshiping in truth means worshiping in Christ. It means having a mediator who stands between your sinfulness and God's holiness. He's our sole mediator. Christ is our sole mediator. As the 1689 Confession states, quote, Since the fall, worship is not to be given without a mediator, nor through any mediation other than of Christ alone. End quote. The only way to approach God, friends, is through Christ, is in Christ. That's why he would go on to say in John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the reason for that is pretty straightforward. If we come before God on the basis of anyone's merit, anyone's righteousness other than Christ's, we will only be worthy of judgment. Now some people would say that I, uh, in, in, in saying all this stuff, you know, the regulative principle of worship and everything, that I am advocating for some kind of very cold, um, rigid, legalistic, emotionless worship. Friends, I am not saying that worship should not stir your emotions. In fact, I would say it should. It should stir your emotions. But that is not the primary purpose. That is not the goal, the primary goal of worship. Worshiping in spirit and truth is the purpose. Worshiping God as he deserves and demands to be worshiped is our purpose. When we do what God has instructed us to do from a right heart with the right motives... It does stir our motivations. But as one commentator notes, he says this, he says, quote, the trajectory of biblical worship is light shining through the mind to warm the heart, end quote. In other words, we're not aiming first and foremost at your heart, hoping that your mind gets some leftovers. No, the way that, the way that God's designed it is that it would be shining into your mind and it would filter down to your heart. In this way, the whole person is moved moved and God is worshiped in the way that he has instructed and that pleases him. True worship is one of the three great marks, the three great evidences of the new nature. Listen to what Paul says when he writes his letter to the Philippians. In chapter 3, verse 2, he writes this. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the Pharisees, right? He's talking about these people who Jesus had said are doing the right things with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. What, what they're doing wasn't worship. What they were doing was just man-centered ritualism, religiosity. It's the same people Jesus was talking about. But Paul continues. He writes this in verse 3. He says, For we, speaking of Christians, Speaking of those who are redeemed by Christ, who have believed in him, repented and believed in him, he says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So did you catch that? Three things. Three marks. Three, three pieces of evidence 
that identify those in Christ. They worship in the Spirit of God, they glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Friends, it's not optional. It's not something that you can take a pass on if you want to worship God. It's a must. It's a must. Worship must be in spirit. It must come from the new nature that God has by His great mercy granted to His people. The more attractive, the more enticing worship would be to the flesh, the less spiritual it is. And conversely, the more spiritual our worship is, the less those who are in the flesh will be enticed by it and drawn to it. That's just the nature of worship. Worship must be in truth with the right understanding of who God is, with the understanding that God himself is, by the essence of his nature, truth, and that his word is truth, and that his word has told us not only who we are to worship, but how. At this point, it simply becomes a matter of obedience. It simply becomes a matter of saying, thy will be done, not my will. It becomes a matter of yielding our desires, our preferences, our inclinations to him, of believing his word over the preferences, over the opinions that we ourselves are all so inclined to have and acting accordingly. Listen, we all have different preferences, don't we? So how in the world, if, if worship is based on preferences, how can the body of Christ be one and yet appeal to preferences when everybody has different preferences? You can't. You can't. J.C. Ryle notes of our passage in John, he says, quote, We are all naturally inclined to make religion a mere matter of outward forms and ceremonies and to, and to attach an excessive importance to our own particular manner of worshiping God. We must be very beware of this spirit, end quote. That's exactly what I'm saying. It can't be based on our preferences. That Not only will that divide us from the body, but that's not what pleases God. We have to understand that worship is a very serious matter because the souls of men and women, that's a very serious matter. But friends, even if we were to have the biggest and the most impressive church building in town, even if we were to have the most beautiful cathedral in the entire state with the most heavenly choir and the, the largest congregation in the entire state, and yet if our hearts were not being turned to God as we gather... All the appearance stuff would just be vanity. It would all be for naught because it would not be something that God was pleased by. He's pleased by a person turning their heart to him in spirit and in truth. And so with all that said, friends, let me ask you this. Why do you come to church today? Why are you here? Why do you come every week? Are, are you here for some reason other than to turn your spirit unto God? Will you leave here today not asking yourself, 
whether or not you got anything out of it. That's our inclination. That's the inclination of the flesh. You walk away thinking, ah, I, I don't feel so good about this or that, or, or I do. I felt so good about this or that. But when you leave here today, will you not ask whether or not you personally got anything out of it, but instead will you be asking yourself whether or not you turned your heart unto God? Whether or not you ascribed unto him the glory and the honor and the thanksgiving that he deserves in the way that his word has instructed. Because that's what we should be here for. Since God desires that we worship him in spirit and truth, we should make sure that that's exactly what we're doing. So that we too may be true worshipers of God. Maybe today you've realized you've, you've never worshipped God the way that he desires. Maybe you realize you've never taken worship as seriously as you should. Maybe you've realized that you, you too often allow yourself to get distracted by things that are going on around you, and you've realized that you know, you're really struggling to turn your, your spirit unto the Lord. Or maybe you realize that you've just never, you've just never worshipped him the way that he instructs us in spirit and truth. Friends, the good news is that God is eager to pour out the riches of his glorious grace to all who will confess their sin before him, to all who will agree with what his word says about whatever the case may be, about worship. He's eager to forgive. He is slow to anger. He's ready to pour out the riches of his glorious grace on all who come to him, not on their merit, but on Christ's merit, which we receive through faith, believing in him, believing in him and trusting in the sufficiency of his work on Calvary, believing that he truly did pay it all, that he really did ransom us, that we really were ransomed at the very high price of Christ's own blood shed for sinners who would repent and believe in him. You must come to him, but you must come to him in Christ as our mediator, knowing and believing that in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavishes on us. Friends, I urge you, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in your own ideas, in your own opinions, in your own preferences, or even in your own emotional experiences but worship God in spirit and truth as all true worshipers of God must. Let's pray. Our most glorious and gracious Father, thank you that in your great love for us, you have given us your word, by which you sanctify us, because your word is true. Thank you, Lord, that it instructs us in everything that is necessary for the Christian life, including worship. Lord, our desire is that we would worship you rightly, and yet we confess to you, Father, that we are so inclined, we are, are so prone to worship based on our preferences. 
to come to you looking for something for ourselves rather than just simply coming to you because you are worthy. And so we plead the blood of Christ shed for us. We confess our sin and plead the blood of Christ, remembering that it covers all sin. It takes our sin away. It renders us forgiven. We remember that his sacrifice, his atonement on our behalf was sufficient for the big sins and the little sins and everything in between. We thank you, Lord, that in your word you have instructed us so thoroughly on the things that are necessary. We pray, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit working within us, we would set aside all of our preferences and opinions and even our experiences that we judge things by. And we pray, Lord, that our worship would be pleasing to you because by the power of your Spirit, we come to you worshiping in spirit and truth. Thank you for these words of Christ. Thank you for the atonement that Christ offered on our behalf. We pray, Lord, that our lives and our worship would be pleasing unto you, not because of our own merit, but because of Christ's merit. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.